0: What do you know about the current mayoral candidates in San Luis Obispo? This is Make It Human. <laughs>
1: She's the current incumbent. She's going up for re election. She advocates for bike lanes and affordable housing.
2: Heidi most aligns with my views, I guess I could Heidi. say. Hey. Heidi Harmon? I'm a little bit out of the political scene. Keith, Giffrey free something. I forget his last name. Nice. Oh, that's like the mayor, the Rose lady. <laughs> Nothing at all. Nailed that
3: one.
0: Harmon's running for mayor. Okay, I got this. Heidi Harmon <laughs> went to the climbing gym, and we were there. <laughs>
3: I don't know, I just saw saw a picture of an old man on Instagram. But I'm not really sure when the mayoral race is.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Prop 7 Awareness. Did you know that there's a prop to eliminate daylight savings? I bet you didn't know that because I didn't know that. This is for the awareness. I hope you all know that. Because seriously, does anyone even know that's happening? I don't know. I read it. Did you? Okay. How do you? How did you find out about it? Did
2: you read about it? Austin Gandler, our Sonic intrigue expert. He, um, he was like, what did he say? He's like, we need to talk about the real issues someday. He just comes up to us. I think we need to start talking about the real issues. There's a proposition right now to eliminate daylight savings. I was like, what? I know. Well, I guess that's good.
0: A lot of the people, like I said, were first years that I talked to and I asked this group of two boys and one was first year and one was the second year I was like, what do you guys know about the mayoral candidates? People running for mayor. And he said, I know nothing. And I was like, really? Are you sure? You know, nothing. He's like, and his friend was like, uh, I just know about that one girl, like the Heidi girl. And he's like, oh, wait, wait, is she the girl? Is she like the rose lady? You know, the rose lady. And I was like, "Yeah, that's her." And he's like, "Yeah, the Red Rose Lady." I, he's like, "I see her at Mark at Farmers."
2: Wow. She has such good PR. You know, the Rose Lady. That's what he says. She has such good PR. No, but that's what I think. Yeah. She is because she can be known as the Rose Lady. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Which isn't a bad thing to be known as the Rose Lady. No. It's, I mean, she's known as something.
2: We're in the campaign season. And there's a more mayoral race going on. Um, there's three people running, but most of the publicity is surrounded two figures: the incumbent mm-hmm. mayor Heidi Harmon, uh, who has served almost one term, about 22 months, mm-hmm. and T. Keith Gurney, who served on the city council in the 70s. He's been he was the youngest member of the city council of Slo to date, uh, and the only student. And those are the two candidates. Why should you care about your local politics? Because things can be a better way. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of the ways, and the the way that we've set our system up to be a democracy, that's what we have. We're citizens of a democracy. Politics and local policy and local politicians change the way things are. They can change the way things are. And voting... Allows you to have your voice in the state of affairs. And so. And that's why you should care.
0: Yeah, I agree. And so I think some examples in the way, I think, I think what Heidi has done in the past two years is some of those for, I think just like construction projects in the city are a good example of whether or not you like them or not yeah whether you like them or not is an example of what the local government's doing
2: yeah anything that you're like this can be a better way yeah the way that a lot of those changes can be made is through local politics and that's just such an important thing to know so like what gives give
0: some hard examples
2: uh lighting people a lot of students all the time talk about like there's not enough light around campus so when you walk home you don't feel safe how does that change well The way that those lights are paid for are by taxes. And the way that those taxes are distributed is by a city budget. The city budget, the way those resources are distributed is a group, the city council and the mayor, has to approve of the budget. Construct the budget. Where are all those resources going? If enough people make enough noise and say there is not enough lighting around campus. We need more lighting to feel safe in our town. You can... Make noise about that. You can talk to your representatives. You can elect people that say, yes, I agree. We're going to make those changes. And then those things happen. And so, because of all this, (laughs) there was an election coming up.
0: There is. On November 6th.
2: And one of the big pieces of that, that sort of, I think a lot of people can understand because it's two human beings, is the mayoral election. And basically, Mm -hmm. who you're picking as mayor is going to sort of change the ethos of the town yes you choose you choose heidi Harmon. you choose t keith gurney uh there's there there will be the policies that sort of surround that person and that person endorses it's like well that's that's the reality that will be brought into existence so why do they need to be made human because that's what we're here for today
0: (laughs) they need to be made human because first of all no one knows who they are usually
2: right no one knows who they are or
0: or you
2: you know, know
0: their face
2: and Some you, version that they're, they're providing you know or that PR. someone else is providing.
0: Mm-hmm. You know their face. You, I mean, I'm guessing most of the people who are listening to this has, haven't actually met them before. Mm-hmm. And I, I think definitely I needed them both to be made human.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Because the way that our sort of society works mm-hmm. with social media and all those sorts of things, and we know this about everyone, the image that somebody gives you on Instagram or on their Facebook or whatever isn't who they are. It's who they want you to see them as. But, that is, sort of, but
0: in turn, it's you do perceive them as that way yes. or some version of that.
2: And that's not so human. That's yeah. not a human version of them.
0: And it's, But the thing is, I think that's almost impossible to avoid with social media.
2: Oh, absolutely. That's just yeah. the society that's we just live what in.
0: Social, so, I mean, I think social media is... This, I guess this is a different topic. Social media is great to keep up with what your friends are doing but inevitably mm-hmm. they give off what you want what, what they want to see about you mm-hmm. or to see about themselves
2: yeah and this happens in politics
0: this is a weird analogy because this is not <laughs> i don't think it's very realistic people don't change their parents, but right it's hard say, to- let's say you're really upset with who your parents are they don't give you an allowance. Mm-hmm. You have no freedom to do the things you want to do. You really want to bike outside with your neighbor friends. They don't let you.
2: They say back by seven.
0: Yeah, back by seven.
2: What are these rules? Where do these rules come from?
0: Yeah, and so they are dictating these rules. You have a really small room in your house. And they always come in and clean it for you, even though you don't want it to be cleaned. And you have all your stuff in it. There's, it's a certain spot, but then they move it around all the time. If you're upset about that, and of course there's all these larger systemic issues that to contribute to that. Right. The, your parents
2: only have so this, much money. Yeah. Your, so parents your have room so, is a certain size.
0: Correct. But also, parents have. There's just this um, assumption of what parents can do. Mm-hmm. So in with all parents in America, they all have certain. They, some parents assume that they have more power over the kid, while other parents don't. Yep. But if you want to change everything that's happening in your immediate circle life like your circle of yourself and your friends and everything you can you can't you have the power to use your vote to change that right what if you you have the power when you're a little kid to get new parents
2: right and yeah
0: is that is that too abstract
2: i don't think so (laughs) and here you get to do that
0: yeah that's pretty powerful maybe i'm not a real Make it human podcaster because I went in with these expectations. Right. What well, I mean. That I wasn't going to like him. I that's, really did.
2: It's a human trait. I
0: think it is. And I think I just, you have to recognize it sometimes. Yeah. So.
2: We just, already have these scripts that we expect people are going to like fill in. Mm-hmm. We're like, oh, yeah, this person will say this and then I'll say this and then they'll say this and then I'll come back at them with this. And then when somebody doesn't do that, it's kind of unsettling. Yeah. It's good.
0: I mean, how else would you. It would be really hard to go through life without having expectations.
2: Of I mean, people.
0: I mean, I guess it's an
2: intentional choice.
0: Yeah, you think?
2: I think. I think it sometimes has to be. it's subconscious. Right, and so that's why it has to be an intentional
0: choice. Oh, oh, I see. I see. Yes,
2: yes. To make. I it I thought you meant conscious. it was an intentional
0: choice to mi- have expectations.
2: Oh, that that is true. But I think yeah. most of the times, if you want to counter counterbalance that.
1: Hey there, this is your Sonic Intrigue, Austin Gandler. Make It Human podcast would like to apologize for some technical
2: difficulties that occurred during the interview for T. Keith Gurney. There'll be some slight buzzing in the background, but stay tuned because there's some great interview content ahead.
3: Well, I, Back when I was seven years old, I decided I was going to be some somebody in the design field. So uh, I wanted to be an architect back then. And I came to Cal Poly in 1965 to study architecture. Um, And then I got politically active uh, shortly after being married. And and, uh, I decided to run for city council uh, at the ripe old age of 23, uh, which uh, was—back then you had to be 21 years old to vote. um, And my wife was too young to vote for me. Uh, But uh, it was a very— exciting period. The 70s were a very turbulent era. Um, I was on the city council from 1971 through 1977. Uh, I got re-elected in 1975 and then uh, started my career as a planner and urban designer, which I did for about 30 years and uh, retired from my former firm about five years ago. And uh, watching this particular city council do what it's been doing, including what they tried to do to our neighborhood um, with the exclusive bike lanes and removing all of our on-street parking, um, I decided uh, we need better representation for mayor. So I've been I've been a part of this for quite some time, part of the community for quite some time. So
0: when you were a student, what initially inspired you to get involved? You get involved? Well, the, a certain trigger like what you were saying now
3: about the bike lanes that was happening back then? Or? Well, it was, uh, they were very heady times. It was the time of the Vietnam War. It was the birth of the environmental movement, uh, which I got very caught up in. Uh, it was also a time of civil rights. Uh, and uh, I uh, i went and spoke with one person who ended up becoming my mentor, uh, who asked me, uh, how long have you lived here? Oh, about, Five, six years. Do you have any family here? No. Do you know anybody here? No. Um, do you have any money? No. <laughs> and he says, don't bother running. So I said, well, I'm gonna run, so. And I ran. I spent $400 of my money uh, back then to get elected. It was really pretty amazing because we beat uh, an incumbent and a former incumbent for that, wow. that office, so. And so I think it's interesting that, so in the
2: background, you can hear the construction on the street of, it's not the bike lane construction, I don't think, but it's somebody putting in their driveway, knowing that their street parking is going away. So you hear the, 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 the backing up of the truck. Um, and so you're kind of hearing all the sort of things that, that, sort, that the neighborhood sounds that end up influencing the way he runs in the things that he's running for, and you're hearing somebody putting in their driveway because they know that their street parking is going away. So the the beeping of the truck and the sort of sounds of the of the town are just kind of underneath the whole the whole interview.
0: Um, you said that you people had been telling you for a long time to run for mayor and pushing you, and so. Um just wondering what was that um last push that made you really decide you wanted to run for mayor?
3: Well, I worked with this neighborhood and came up with because I've been a planner and urban designer all my career, um and I did a lot of street escape design projects and downtown revitalization and waterfront revitalization projects. And so I worked with a group in the of the neighborhood that was very um, uh, concerned about what the city was proposing to do and eliminating all the on-street parking. And uh, so we worked on uh, alternative design plans for traffic calming to try to dramatically reduce the speed and volumes on Broad and Chorro to make it safer for bicycles. And it, as it was, there, there's no accident history of the last five years. There's been no bike-on-car, car-on-bike accident on broader charles big problems been up on foothill where where a, a cyclist was killed well that's where they ought to be concentrating is and making these arterial streets more safe because these streets here you got curb cuts every there's there's an intersection every 60 feet right. down these streets you know but uh so um the city uh had a public workshop that they um asked the neighborhood to participate in, and of course the bike, uh, a lot of the bike lobby were there, um, and I presented this alternative plan, uh, and it came through uh, with flying colors. People liked the alternative plan a lot better than they did the city's plan. And then I went outside and left the meeting, and I saw the current mayor announcing her candidacy for a re-election. And I got pretty pumped up by the response that the plan that we did, the, how how much support it generated. And, uh, and the next morning, i uh, I decided to run.
2: left Choro and Murray. Okay, Choro and Murray is in that stretch. Mm. And there were three within the last five years. and that was in 2015. Really? Yeah. And it's ranked ranked eighth of the top 10 in 2015. Choro? Uh, yeah, and this is in the 2015 traffic safety report accessible on slowcity.org uh, and you just find the traffic safety reports. Why is running for mayor a thing that you're doing? You talked a little bit about representation earlier.
3: Well, my, my, I had, you know, having been on the city council for seven years, a number of years ago, um, I, and having worked with local governments up and down the state of California, uh, helping them achieve their objectives, um, I know a lot about local government, uh, local governments across the state of California. And, uh, after uh the current mayor had been in there for a while uh you know she's only been in there about a year and a half um but i had a, a number of people who've known me in the past come and ask me to run for mayor and i i resisted it i have a you know i have a son who lives up in washington i'd like to visit my grandson grandson and uh so i i resisted it but uh you know, after seeing what the council did with our neighborhood, with the Anholm Bikeway, and uh, just refusing to listen to overwhelming uh, opposition to what they they were trying to do, only to have this council not listen and ignore us, uh, That's what that ignited the spark. Uh, but I'm not just a one-issue candidate. You know, I, I've been a part of preserving a lot of the open space you see here, including all four transactions that led to the permanent preservation of Bishop Peak. Um, Islay Peak to the south, uh, the South Street Hills behind Meadow Park. Um, I've been a part of preserving uh, about 120,000 acres of the California landscape in permanent open space.
2: So what's the most powerful emotion you've had in the past
3: two weeks? Peace. Peace. If that, if that can be called an emotion, I, <laughs> I uh, before I decided to run for office, um, I bought my wife a birthday present, which was a—she's an avid quilter. She does quilts of valor for uh, veterans. You know, I had I had any inkling I would have been running for mayor, I never would have done that schedule because it was right in the middle of the campaign. But it really allowed me to relax and reflect and write and— uh you know, had I been here, uh, you know, right in the middle of all the noise of the campaign, I wouldn't have been able to get the perspective I did being out there. But, yeah, peace.
0: That was such a surprise to me.
3: That he said peace? Yeah. It was a good it, it was
2: a great response.
0: <laughs> you know, that was like... You know, like Miss America.
2: Oh, and they say something dope for a change. Yeah,
0: and they say something good. Like, because I was expecting classic politician answer. Yeah. Which I don't know what that would have even been.
2: I don't know. Excitement, passion.
0: Yeah. Change, but peace. That was so unique. Mm -hmm. Good answer, Keith.
2: So often, I think elections and campaign season turns into this period of anxiety for everybody Mm -hmm. and just this sort of there's this hubbub and just so much is happening and there's this this idea that like if you're not if you're not going the whole Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. then it's not going to work and that might be true like if you're not present the whole time and you're not like fully there Mm -hmm. like the people won't the people won't hear what you have to say and the Mm -hmm. people won't know what you're what you stand for all those sorts of things but just this the sort of approach and willingness there's a a willingness to embrace like a sort of pause in the midst of the chaos Mm -hmm. and how much that can center how much that can center you by sort Mm -hmm. of pulling back and sort of looking at things and getting a chance to to write and reflect all those things.
0: Is this something that you enjoy doing? Do you like find yourself happy while you are doing it? Uh
3: I do enjoy it. Um, it 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 comes at an expense uh, in terms of your private life. Um, barking dogs now. Okay, uh, but the uh, yeah, I I feel like I've been pretty good at it. You know, when I was on the city council uh, back in the '70s, uh, we started the first bus system here. Uh, we, I, I wrote the first conflict of interest in campaign finance regulations and for local government in the state of California wow. way before the state got involved in it. Probably one of the more interesting ones was uh, getting bike racks in the downtown. Sounds like a small thing, but uh, the police chief had been writing tickets to uh, a lot of students riding their bikes um, through the community. And I said, well, if you're going to treat bikes like cars, why don't you give them some parking spaces in the downtown? So I brought it up to the city council, and uh, they refused to do it. I was on the one end of a four-to-one vote. And so what I did is I organized a bunch of students, and we got on our bikes and swooped into the downtown on Thursday night. Thursday night used to be the only night downtown was open. It was a very sleepy place back then. And so we swooped into the downtown, took every parking space, and put money in the meters. So no cars could park in the downtown on Thursday night. And within a week, we had bike racks in the downtown.
0: Wow. Well, I use those bike racks. So.
3: Yep. Yeah, me too. Good. You bet.
2: It's the first bike night. Yeah, nah, first bike, first ride, bike so. night. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Tell me about your parents and your grandparents. Something that we've been really interested, or at least I've been really interested, is where people come from, because you came from two people, which is yeah. just bananas.
3: Well, my parents, my father was a dentist uh, who grew up in Santa Maria, and my mother was uh, was a housewife, but a very brilliant woman. She went to Berkeley at the age of 16, um, very sharp, very artistic, and that probably gave me influenced me a lot in getting into the field that I chose. Um, grandparents, uh, my uh, my mother's um, father was uh, an alcoholic and an abuser, and my uh, and his wife was a wonderful woman. She survived the 1906 earthquake, and we used to lay in bed and listen to her tell that story every time we saw her. Um, my uh, on my father's side, they uh, those grandparents lived in uh, in Santa Cruz. Uh, he uh, he actually knew Jack London back uh, when Jack London was starting to write. Uh, so yeah, kind of an interesting past. That's an interesting question. I got to tell you. <laughs>
2: Do you yeah. have any siblings?
3: Yeah, I have uh, two brothers and a sister.
0: Okay, four of you.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: I'm also one of four. So, are you? Yes.
3: <laughs> well, we call it my sister, who's 15 years younger than me. We call her the Hawaiian mistake. <laughs> That's funny.
2: <laughs> uh, so what are some issues that you think are shared by both students and residents? A lot of times it feels like there's a, this divide between the the...
3: You know, School that's unfortunate. Hill. That's really unfortunate. You know, and when I was on the city council as a Cal Poly student, I was a very forceful advocate for students. And that's what I'm going to continue to do when I'm mayor. Um, you know, people don't realize how big a component of our population is students um, and, and the good that they can do for a community. For example, uh, I was on the city council that opened Mission Plaza. There used to be a street that ran in front of the mission. People don't realize that. A Very contentious issue. And finally, uh, uh, we opened the, the, the first phase of, of that plaza in 1971. But in 1968, it was three Cal Poly architecture students who made a presentation to the city council back then that ignited that idea. Cal Poly is responsible for the vision that led to Mission Plaza. And... Uh, I think Cal Poly has every right to be proud of that. But, you know, the issues of students and, and the community, you are always going to have these town-gown relationships where, you know, you know, students do drink and they party and they make noise. Um, but the, there's a huge positive uh, effect on the community. Uh, I mean, obviously an economic one. Um but I think, I think we need to really try to get students more active in local government. You know, And again, l- learn by doing, that's what I did. And I would like to see somebody break my record of being the only student ever elected to the city council. I'd love to see that happen. How can we ameliorate that situation? Is it possible? Well, I think the community needs to make some adjustments and the students need to make some adjustments. Um, I, for one, believe you know, we have probably 16, 17 different city commissions, Planning Commission, Architecture Review Commission, Human re, uh, human Relations Commission, Promotional Coordinating Committee, a lot of committees. And I think each one of those committees should have a student on it to the extent that students are willing to participate in that and learn about local government and and get a feel for those situations. Austin, our sonic intrigue expert, uh,
2: he he's in the he's on the deck with us recording, and he asks Keith that or he he, he tells him that that Cal Poly is not within the slowed City jurisdiction, which basically means that if you are living on campus and this the plan right now the Cal Poly master plan is to expand housing a great deal more and to house over fifty percent of the student body on campus, which does all sorts of good things in studies about it's like student retention, having them stay in school, having them do better in classes, having them graduate on time, all these things. It does really good does really good things for for student success. But the problem is Cal Poly is not within the slow city limits.
0: And I'm pretty sure that is pretty standard for a lot of college campuses because when you're on a college campus, you're on a state property.
2: Yeah. You're what about private schools? mm I don't know, and the so the which challenge is, then is because you're not within slow city city limits, you cannot vote for any slow measure or no, politician you can vote for measure, oh, because those are county any slow city politician. you can't vote for any slow city politician or is, whatever city you're in,
0: which is interesting because I think it suggests that oh, we're the ta- we're the little town within the town. so if you want to make any changes, just...
2: Do you know, it in your talk, little town.
0: Yeah, do it in your little town. Talk to ASI.
2: But you're with, you're still, you live in the city. You live yes. in the city you live in.
0: Yeah, yeah. You're not
2: living in a different city. Yeah. The mayor choice and the city council choices, those affect your life. Yeah. And you have no say. Mm-hmm. And so Austin was curious, it would it be possible for Cal Poly to be within the slow city limits? Because we, because we wanted to, to interview our, the two mayoral candidates, sure. Uh, we thought we'd find the person who uh, we know who cares the most about local politics, and that would be Dom Checker.
4: <laughs> yeah, so I just wanted to come in on the topic of uh, the economic effect of students in the city. Yes. Um, we were talking about the positives that... Uh, I think uh, sales in downtown, et cetera, oh, gotcha. will have from the student impact. But I think when we look at the uh, poverty rate, which is about double the national average currently, around 30%, is what a, a US Census Bureau statistic shows. Um, and then income inequality being marginally above the national average. Um, and the, I mean, what we all know the, the housing crisis, uh, the affordability. And so, I, I wonder, I, I've heard about your plan to, like, have a levy some sort of a tax or, or economic constraint on Cal Poly. No. Or against the
3: students, no? No. Well, how would you solve that problem? Well, I, I, first of all, I do, I do agree with Cal Poly's master plan to try to house more students on campus, uh, to free up more housing in the community for working people could be graduating students. Um, but what I wanted to do is create a a much stronger relationship between the city and Cal Poly uh, and advocate a jointly sponsored design competition uh, to look at um, designing a new village or neighborhood on the northwest portion of the campus, not the, not the area that competes with the agricultural operations. But you know, Poly Canyon up in that area, and design something where students would want to live—not just barracks, dormitories—but want to live where they would have access to recreation and entertainment and neighborhood support facilities, and uh, and have a financial prize for that design competition. Um, and I think, you know, my son went to USF uh, in the heart of San Francisco. And you had to be an on-campus resident for the first three years of your academic career in order to register for classes. Now, if that were to eventually happen, because it can't happen overnight, uh, with Cal Poly, think about the amount of housing that would free up. And it would have probably a, a very strong impact on reducing the price of housing in certain neighborhoods.
4: Um, I also wanted to just ask about uh, your environmental position. I mean, we know in 1971, you were elected onto the council on an environmental platform. But just to, uh, I guess, clear the base on how you feel on Measure G, um, are are you for it or against it?
3: I'm struggling with it. um, uh, Because um, if it was just about fracking, or if it was just about offshore oil, a ban on offshore oil drilling, I'd be all over it. 100% 100% in support, but um, trying to, to shut down land-based oil expor- exploration and tr- as an attempt to get us to get off oil a cold turkey rather than weaning us off of it, which is what we, I think we need a gentler transition to make that happen, concerns me. Um, I know that part of the initiative also allows existing operations to continue, like out at Price Canyon. Uh, and that might just um, push me over the edge to say yes on it. But I'm, I'm struggling with it. Mm-hmm. And how do you feel about uh, the fuel company involvement in local policy through advertising? Like Chevron's $4 million oh, yeah. investment? Oh, yeah. Well, I made a pledge I wasn't going to take any money from oil companies. Um, and uh, I, I don't know uh, to what extent they're involved in lo- some of the local races. Obviously, Measure G is... They're spending a lot of money on it. But they're trying to defend their, their operation, you know. It's, there's, I don't know how many jobs are dependent upon uh, continuing those operations. But, uh, uh, again, if it was just fracking, I, I think fracking is dangerous. Just look at what's happened in o- Oklahoma uh, with the cluster of earthquakes that are happening all over the place back there. Uh, But I understand that we don't have the the geologic formation necessary to to invite fracking into the county. So I don't think, I think banning fracking is not a problem. Thank you. I've been trying to find your answer on that all over, but the
4: coverage just hasn't been that great, I guess. It's been hard to find, like, a declarative answer. So thank you. Um, And then... uh, Going further down that envir- your environmental stance, um, you, you've proposed changes to our county's guidelines for implementing the California Environmental Quality Act, which you were a principal author of, I do believe. Um, community members are concerned that it shows uh, you to not be a protector of neighborhoods, and they also feel that um, the prescriptions would seriously weaken the ability of neighborhoods to
3: protect themselves. Boy, I couldn't disagree with that statement more. Um, my statement, my, the number one goal of my running for office is representing our neighborhoods and protecting our neighborhoods. Um, I've been in the planning and urban design business for better than 40 years. And I've seen the California Environmental Quality Act abused, misused, and sometimes correctly used. Um the county's environmental, uh, California Environmental Quality Act guidelines um, are out of date. They're, they're, they're 23 years old, and uh, the county's developed some really bad habits of allowing bias to creep into its documents. Uh, so what, I'm, what we were trying to do in forming the CEQA um, working group is to get back to the basics of the law of protecting the environment and, and following the guidelines closely. The county's guidelines don't, don't totally adhere to the California Environmental Quality Act. They've got some different things in there. Um, but environmental impact reports have become so costly, so expensive, so time consuming. Uh, we need to get, somehow make them more efficient and get to, get to the right decisions quicker. Uh, and that's one of the motives about that. So many planners, you know, when I when I came through the school, I, I, I was educated as kind of a visionary problem and creative problem solver. And I think too many planners are problem finders. They're looking for, only looking for the negative and not the positive. So too many of them. There was a project proposed down in the Oklahoma area. And they were calling uh, the visibility of one house It was over a mile away from Highway 101 as a class one environmental impact, okay? If you were going 70 miles an hour down the freeway and you had a pair of binoculars and you took your eyes off the road and put the binoculars up to your eyes, you wouldn't be able to see it. But they used a telephoto lens to show this big impact of this house way back there. that You'd never see it like that. It, you know, um, there's truth has been missing in action in a lot of our EIRs. What those EIRs should be is a search for the truth.
2: The California Environmental Quality Act is a California statute passed in 1970 shortly after the United States federal government passed the National Environmental Protection Policy Act, NEPA to institute a statewide policy of environmental protection sounds really great right?
0: yeah absolutely
2: that sounds like a good thing to do and this is in the 70s so this act has existed for so long that now it's sort of it's no longer being used in the same way of like oh like we're going to look at problems that we might be causing in the environment and change our decisions so that those problems are mitigated now it's being used to stop certain processes or it's become so burdensome to do certain things like the Environmental Impact Report, the EIR that he talks mm-hmm. about. Those have become very expensive to do and very burdensome. And they should be burdensome because they're thorough, right? Mm-hmm. You don't want to like, mm-hmm. make bad decisions. But if they're, the fact that they're costly and that's preventing people from, I don't know, making changes that could also be good, mm-hmm. that's a problem. And so maybe using the act differently or amending it in a way that it's more applicable.
4: Diving back into Cal Poly a bit and what we did talk about with the master plan. Um, what do you think are its greatest pros and cons? Maybe like top three for both. Cause I know it's a hefty.
3: Well, I mean, here. how, how much more growth can Cal Poly take, <laughs> you know? Uh, they're talking about growing by another 5,000 students. When I came to Cal Poly in 1965, the total student body population was 6,000. Now it's over 20, 21,000, something like that. But you know, the state keeps uh, making decisions to uh, to provide for that kind of growth of these academic institutions without thinking about where's the water going to come from to sustain it. You know, we're what about the infrastructure? Because um, Cal Poly, in order to grow by another 5,000 students, is going to have to find another source of water supply. And I don't think the city can afford to give up much more of its water to help Cal Poly do that. It, given, given what we have happening with climate change, we need to, I think, fundamentally reevaluate our water picture. You know. Extended periods of drought, lower rainfall, higher evaporation rates, uh, year-round firefighting. I mean, it's not a seasonal thing anymore. It's 12 months out of the year, they're fighting fires. Um, We need to really take a a hard look at at whether that source of water is going to sustain us. And if it does, I think within resource limits is what you really need to look toward to determine what the right size is
0: you mentioned that Cal Poly is um, possibly going to add more students to, or that in their plan, adding more students, 5,000 more students, I believe it was. Yeah. Um, and as mayor, would you have a say in changing that or like, cause I don't know what the relationship is between the mayor and Cal Poly. I don't know if there's much to say. that can't there,
3: There's some communication between the mayor and Cal Poly, but I, it needs to be much tighter and much closer. You know, we, we're, we're two big neighbors, you know. Cal Poly is a huge neighbor. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get a feeling like it's a tail wagging the dog. But I, I really think we need to work much more closely together. I, when I decided to run, I mean, that day that I decided to run, I made a phone call to Jeffrey Armstrong because he knows me. He knows I'm the first and only student that ever elected the city council. And I get a call back from this this public relations person, Courtney Kino, who said, we don't talk with candidates. And I said, really? Do you talk with the city council? Well, sure. Well, they're candidates. So uh, that's not a good start. (laughs) Not a good start. And so, uh, you know... um, If I do get elected, there'll be a new sheriff in town, and and, uh, I'm going to be talking directly with Jeff Armstrong and uh, trying to get us both to deal with issues of mutual concern to both of us. One of the things I did when I first got elected is I kind of laid out my platform, this is what I believe in, this is what I'm going to do. And I just simply said, you know, if you like what I have to say, vote for me. If you don't, don't. (laughs) <laughs> don't um, you know and I, I'm saying that in this election you know if you want 75 foot tall buildings downtown which are 20 feet taller than the hotels being built there if you want 22 churro and 790 foothills to be developed and block the views of our peaks that I help preserve uh, if you want to run exclusive bike paths down through the throat of historic residential neighborhoods don't vote it for me
0: great advice um, <laughs> well, it's, it's
3: kind of an unusual yeah. spin but I I'm, know
0: but I, I like how just frank and honest you are yeah like, that's good
3: well you yeah, know and if that. and if they don't want me uh, so be it
0: yeah good. I know I'm excited I'm excited for students to hear your voice and hear your story I'm well
3: uh, I hope they listen
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me too they do
3: good good we
2: We are recording um, in the midst and in between the new Cal Poly dorms. There's people walking by, the wind's blowing. These are the sounds of Cal Poly's (laughs) campus.
0: What is your history with the city of SLO and what are some of the first things you remember about it? Um,
1: Anything you're nostalgic about the town? Mm. What's your connection? Okay, well I came up to San Luis Obispo right after high school. I came up to go to Cuesta, actually. Finally settled on liberal studies, and then I came to Cal Poly and graduated with a degree from Cal Poly in liberal studies. I think one of my earliest memories is probably my first job here, which was at Woodstocks. <laughs> and like a lot of people that worked at Woodstocks at that time, and I don't know if it's still true today, but I met the person that would become my husband there, and then we ended up having two kids. And at that time, we were one of six or seven couples to have met there and gotten married. So I definitely have fond um Thoughts about Woodstocks in those early days. So
0: he also worked at Woodstocks? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's so cute. So you guys, was it like a big friend group that was all? Yeah.
1: I mean, it was sort of like one of those TV shows you see where, you know, you have a lot of regulars and the employees are, I mean, we were all young. We were all, you know, eating pizza and I'm sure drinking too much beer and stuff yeah, like that, funny. you know. Oh, that what, sounds fun. What, yeah. what year was this? So I came to San Luis in the in January of 88.
2: Okay, so. so you would have been here at the same time my parents were. That's oh my God, so funny.
1: I, I wonder, did they work at Woodstocks? <laughs>
2: they frequented lift stock, Woodstocks. Okay. You know that big Victorian house on Johnson & Mill? So, yeah. They lived, that was their first home. No
1: way. Yeah, they lived in that like is a, the first place I lived with my then boyfriend's soon-to-be husband at that time.
2: In the first, wow. in like that front little room.
1: We lived in a little tiny one in the back.
2: Okay, they yeah. lived in the little tiny one in the front. Okay. <laughs> oh my
1: God.
2: That's so <laughs> that funny. That is really fun. You've run for mayor once, mm-hmm. and you won mm-hmm. with 46 votes. Yeah. Um, so why is running for mayor a thing that you're doing now again?
1: Well, it's a really short term. You know, it's a two year right. term, but I've only been in it, you know, for 20 months or so. And actually, I'm really proud of all the work we've been able to do in that short amount of time. And so I really want to be able to continue on and f- see a lot of those projects through. And I also think that it's a really important time to be a mayor. And we need mayors that have a real people centric, social justice, environmental lens more than ever. And I'm concerned that that won't continue on if I am not um able to be in this role and so I feel I'm really committed to that and so I feel grateful to have that opportunity and I want to continue to be that kind of leader and so for um the work
0: that you're really proud of the work that you have done Mm -hmm. what are some examples of those things that you've accomplished
1: Man, the level of civility that we have at council is something that I'm really proud of. And I think that's been the basis for a lot of the efficient and effective work that we've been able to do as a group. But the policy that I'm the most proud of, well, it's kind of a, it's a toss up. There's several things. I would say three things. Our carbon neutrality goal is number one you know coming to this work out of a concern around climate change having been a climate activist for a long time having two kids whose lives will be directly impacted by our changing climate this is what I came here to do and the city of San Luis Obispo just made the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal of any city in the United States and so I'm really proud of that Um, and I'm also proud of voting to stop celebrating Columbus Day and instead celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. That is something that I'm, one of the things I'm actually the most proud of. It makes me feel uh, really emotional. I just think that that's just, those kind of things are so important. Mm -hmm. And then our welcoming city status, that we will not pursue people based on their documentation status. That people in the city of San Luis will hopefully feel welcomed And supported. Um, You know we have a lack of diversity in our community and I'm really concerned about it and so I feel like it's especially important that issues that impact diversity are um, really addressed and so welcoming city status and Indigenous Peoples Day are two ways that we've moved in that direction that I'm proud of. What
0: So in running for mayor, mm-hmm. I'm sure
1: that you have a lot of
0: different feelings and emotions and ups and downs. And so we were just wondering what the most powerful emotion you've
1: had in the past few weeks was. Hmm. It is definitely a roller coaster for sure. I mean, people can be so cruel that it can be really depressing, you know, and, and it's often not so much that I take it personally, but what makes me the most what makes me feel the most upset, I think, is just the way people treat other people in general. And it makes me feel concerned and recognize why people don't want to get involved in democracy, why some people don't even vote or don't pay attention at all, and especially don't want to consider running for office. And especially women or and anybody in a marginalized group wouldn't consider running for office because it can be so brutal. And that's what really gets me down. Um, but... The other feeling is sort of on the opposite side of the spectrum in that it's so inspiring and joyful to be with people that I've been able to inspire and invite to get involved. That is when I feel the most affirmed in the work that I'm doing. I'm um, Not only being able to pa- pass policies that are really important, but more importantly to me is to be able to inspire people to get involved, and that is a great feeling. Yeah. Yeah, so it's all over the place. Running for office.
2: Take us through your process of campaigning. What's uh, what's the what does a day look like? Who do you get most nervous to talk to? Mm-hmm. Those sorts of things.
1: Okay, these are great questions. I love that you guys are doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so the day. So I've been waking up at two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning and not being able to go back to sleep for an hour usually. And that seems campaign related. So it's some type of generalized anxiety probably um, about either something specific or just the whole process. So that's, I guess, how the day starts. And luckily I usually fall back asleep. And then I wake up usually around six or so and grab my phone like probably a lot of people do and then check social media and see number one, is something? Um, is someone saying something so awful that we need to deal with it? Um, and if not, then just kind of checking the, the landscape and my emails, and then um, and then during a the campaign. Normally, I would exercise and go for a walk and whatnot, but now I'm walking neighborhoods, and I don't. I'm car-free, so I'm also riding my bike everywhere I go. So I'm factoring that into my day, and I have a lot of meetings with groups. I have had two already today. Um, So going from one thing to another, and then spending a lot of time on my laptop, getting back to people, coming up with graphics for events, getting all the details for those types of things, and hopefully motivating people to get out and walk neighborhoods, and especially to get out and boat. And then events at night, and then going home and watching an episode of West Wing every night before I go to bed. That's not a joke.
2: The fact that she has gone car-free just shows me that she walks the walk you know like she doesn't just talk Mm -hmm. about sustainability Mm -hmm. she doesn't just talk about like the climate being an issue she's like yeah like I'm gonna I'm gonna show even the mayor
0: yeah she's being an example to everyone else
2: yeah and I think so many people like that's sort of the role that the mayor plays in their life Mm -hmm. is like oh like what's the people look for a role model Mm
0: -hmm. do you find that when you go around town that you're
1: recognized by most people there Just is a 3B. pretty high level of recognition i would say yeah yeah i experienced that yeah because one thing that you've brought up a few
0: times is um like social media uh-huh. and i do feel like you do have great pr thanks. i feel like i know who you are <laughs> thanks and um i i I see your face on a lot of Mm -hmm. um, posters Mm -hmm. and social media and see your posters everywhere. And Mm -hmm. so is that something that you work on a lot or do you feel like that's a central part of your
1: campaign or since you've been um, in office that you've had your um, focus on? I think it's really important and I think it's important for a lot of different reasons that one of the things I'm trying to do is make it look joyful. A lot of it's really hard. Um, And as I already said, you know, it can be really challenging and at times really even depressing and upsetting, but the work itself really is really joyful. And I want to, I want it to be fun and joyful for me, and I want to show that through my social media and also show people that it can be, for lack of a better word, cool, right? You know, like you don't have to be, you don't get extra points, you're not a better politician or a policymaker or person from being boring, you're just not. And that's been a message that especially women have, and men too, for sure in politics, have had to adopt. You know, that I need to wear a suit, I need to be super serious in order to be taken seriously. And that really um, doesn't compel a lot of people to get involved, frankly. Especially young people, and again, especially young women. And so I don't confuse solemnity with seriousness. I'm very serious. I've done a lot of serious things. And I will continue to do those serious things. But I'm doing them in a way that is hopefully joyful and aesthetically interesting, and also what I. I'm trying to do is show people how to do it like this is how you do it you can be fun and have a protest you know too and 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 this is where you will meet your best friends or your partner and and all these connections and relationships that you'll be building along the way of doing the work of making the world a better place that's where the action is that's where the cool kids are that's where it's fun and where it's happening you know Um, because I think you see uh, more traditional politicians and look at them and think this is a totally different person than I am. Um, I'll never be like that, whatever that is in your mind, you know? Um, You know, like I'll never be a Hillary Clinton, you know? And I have a lot of empathy for her and I think her really feeling like when she was coming up in politics, really having to mold herself to the more masculine model, a less authentic version of herself. And I think that in the end, ended up really being a disservice to her and to the people of this country and so i have full empathy for that Um, but we need people to show up as their authentic selves and that's another thing i feel really committed to and i think that people even if they don't consciously articulate that that's really what's happening here so for me this is what that authenticity looks like for other people it might look like having short hair and a pantsuit like if that's your authentic self then that's what you need to do because when you're being fully you and authentic, people sense that they gravitate towards that, and they want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big part of what I'm trying to message on social media too. Yeah, or not even trying to message. I'm just being my authentic self, and yeah. that's what you see. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I do. I do like the the um, the flower Thanks. with your logo and everything. <laughs> it's just some, it's so unique, and I've never seen that, like you said, in any political
1: campaign or anything. Mm-hmm. So I ran for office the first time in fourth grade for sergeant of arms and. My slogan then was vote for Heidi because Heidi is mighty. <laughs> and that we're, that's where this Heidi is mighty comes from. And so one of our slogans in the campaign is get mighty. Yeah, And I love that because that has nothing really to do with me. That really has to do with you. Yeah, And that's a big part of what I'm always trying to do. You know, like people will often come to me all day, whether they tag me and stuff on social media or whatever, and say, how about you such and such like what are you going to do about such and such and I feel like well no what are you going to do about such and such or what are we going to do together so you know I am out here doing all that I can but you need to get mighty too and you need to be part of it um, if we really want to address a lot of the issues that need to be addressed so I like that because I hope hopefully it's empowering for the 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 voter or, or the people out there in the community
0: yeah tell me about your
1: parents and your grandparents how did they shape you Yeah. Well, I grew up in the 70s during the first wave of really a huge wave of divorced parents. It was really the first time in our history that we had had that. And so I was one of those kids in what we would have called then, you know, like a broken home. Um, And I didn't realize that I was a part of a huge historical cohort at that time. All I knew is that my parents were divorced. And I think that was really hard. Um, And I think that my mom probably, you know wasn't expecting that and didn't have an ideal set of skills to handle that and I think that the way that has affected me most is feeling really committed to my maternal role with my kids and just in general a a kind of a maternal presence I think that I feel really connected to my grandparents um, I didn't have that strong of relationship with either side maybe my maternal grandparents a little bit more Um, My mother, my grandmother came from a very affluent family, and my grandfather came from literally the wrong side of the tracks. He lived in a homeless tent community when he was growing up. Um, And so they had a a really interesting situation where my grandmother had to um, go against the will of her very formal family to marry him. Um, So that's kind of interesting, I guess. Yeah, my grandmother went on the Queen Mary when she graduated from high school. She went on the Queen Mary to Europe and back um, and was supposed to marry, I think, I don't know, some higher up at the early stages of IBM or something like that and, and left all that behind to marry my grandfather who was wow. um, li- literally living in, I think, a tent community wow. in Southern California somewhere. They met on, my grandfather was a professional tennis player okay. and all, everyone in my family is in tennis. Um, He was a professional tennis player and then became a tennis professional, so a tennis teacher. And so I think at the country club where my grandmother's family attended, he was the tennis pro there. And he was very handsome, and he was a great tennis player. So I guess that was on my grandmother's <laughs> list. <laughs>
2: As mayor, it's pretty important to be in touch and listen to your residents, uh, to the residents of your town. Um, and your platform seems to make listening a pretty high priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk about being out with your people a mm-hmm. great amount of the time. Uh, so what is that? What does that mean practically that we do neighborhood walks mm-hmm. um and who do you think you have the hardest time listening to?
1: Hmm. So, I have been really proactive. My feeling is that you can't sit at City Hall and just wait for people to come to you. I think there's a lot of people, and myself included, in past years probably didn't even know where City Hall was or really understand the nexus between the policies that were being created there and my own life. And so, I feel especially sensitive to working people that are working two jobs oftentimes that can't afford to get involved in the democratic process, single parents in particular having been one. And so, I have done several things in that arena. So I've had these neighborhood walks where any constituent could reach out to me and we would organize a walk in their neighborhood with their neighbors, and I've probably done 30 of those. I've done pop-up democracy events where I pick a topic, so say cannabis or homelessness, and have a meeting that's public. So we've met in Mission Plaza, we've met at restaurants or bars, and just to bring anybody that wants to come to the, together to have a discussion. One of the hard things about city council is that I can say my piece and people can come and speak for their three minutes, but we don't really have a dialogue. And I really like to have that back and forth. And so yeah. I've created some of those um, spaces to do that. I also have open office hours in the hothouse, which I've really appreciated. So anyone can come to that, but it tends to be hothouse people. So I've learned a lot about the local innovation tech entrepreneurial space, which has been really exciting. I would love to focus in my new term on civic, entrepreneurship and innovation and really finding the nexus between the problems that we are facing as a city and the technology that could be created to solve some of those problems um, social benefit corporations are something that are, are of high interest to me um, so that's been a great experience um, and then I've had a lot of events at parks too for parents who can just bring their kids so you don't have to you shouldn't have to get a babysitter to participate in local democracy so I was a preschool teacher a long time ago also so I have a fondness for you know kids of course and so I'm happy to go and be in the park for an hour while moms are pushing their kids on swings and we can talk about Mm -hmm. affordable housing or homelessness or whatever's on their mind and I think the hardest group has become I would say the older incumbent residents that there's been a lot of divisiveness created in the last six months over the course of this campaign unfortunately and it seems to have been fairly generational in nature, and there's older incumbent residents that are having, it sounds like they're having a hard time as in, in this transition, and I think what's happened is, you know, they are experiencing it as not being listened to, but I think what's actually happened is that we are listening, we're just listening to a lot more voices. Hmm. And so they are used to being one of the only voices present, and their voice has definitely been diluted, as it should be, though, by a democratic right. expansion of, of listening. So, you know, it reminds me of, I think it's an Audrey Lorde quote of, um, for those people of privilege, equality feels like an injustice. And it it's seems a little bit like that. You know, we're used to being um, the only ones that are being listened to. And now there's more voices and we don't have quite the same weight that we used to. Um, but, I, you know, I empathize with that. And I think that is going to be one of my main tasks in the new year is to reach out to them and and really make it clear that I am listening and that I very much value our my elders and I want to learn from them and I respect that that they were they've been here a long time a lot of them have been crucial in creating the open space and all those things that we find special here so I think that we need to have probably a a long process of healing an intergenerational divide
2: Questions of, of policy and politics and what is the government doing and all these things, they just get so abstracted and there are lots of misconceptions. Um, but what it really comes down to is, is the work the work for the people. Um, and so as much as people need to be made human, politics and uh, that's sort of often what's seen as a gross process and dirty and whatever... Uh, also, I think, needs to be made human. And so we thought, who better to address these questions than uh, the person who we know cares more about local politics than anyone else, uh, Dom Checker. Hey,
4: thank you. Yeah. That was really nice, especially the uh, conversation on authenticity and aesthetics. <laughs> wish I had a lot longer to talk about that. Uh-huh. <laughs> that was nice. Um, yeah. So I guess uh, just to begin, um, like we know your environmental stance more or less, but just to confirm, as we did with uh, Keith Gurney too, where do you stand on Measure G?
1: I am in full support of Measure G and have been working with them on that the best that I can during my own campaign. Yeah, I mean, that's the work I've been doing feels like my whole life. So I'm 100% in favor of stopping extraction of all types immediately.
4: Great. And so you don't believe in like a transition time?
1: Well, I think that's inevitable, right? So, but uh, as the IPCC report that just came out last week made it really, really clear that there are a lot of uh, very highly regarded scientists that already think it's so-called too late. And so they said that we have approximately 10 years to, yes, stop the burning and consumption of all fossil fuels. And is that an ideal situation? No, of course not. Should we have transitioned a long time ago? Absolutely. You know, Jimmy Carter in the 70s put solar panels up on the White House. Ronald Reagan came in right after him and took them down. And that is the moment that I always think of where we really missed our chance. And we had known about climate change for decades, even way before that. Um, Again, back to my West Wing obsession, which is from the 90s, I think, right, or early aughts. Um, They're talking about it all the time on West Wing, and that's almost 20 years ago, and we still haven't done anything. So, our elders have left us in a really bad situation we we are going to have to transition faster than would probably be normally desirable but it's it's that or outcomes that are unmanageable unmanageable unimaginable and untenable
4: keeping with the environmental topic i do wonder um, in the big picture like the global picture mm-hmm. what do you, how what do you see as the three Biggest contributors or problems to—I'd like to call it environmental degradation—over mm-hmm. just climate change because mm-hmm. it is a multifaceted problem. And then, as we return local and mm-hmm. micro, what are your uh, three biggest stances on what needs to change as far as environmental degradation, and that can include greenhouse gases. Uh, if you don't agree with the uh, the uh, nuclear facilities, mm,
1: Diablo Canyon.
4: Diablo Canyon. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so, from macro to okay. local.
1: Well, I think one of the things that came out of this recent IPCC report was capitalism is the problem, basically, and that to a large extent, and that it it operates under a model that suggests that we have endless resources, which we don't. And we're really butting up against the end of that, what was always a fantasy, but we're really having to address that now. Um, and so we really need to look at our economic systems in general and ask ourselves if, if they're sustainable. And generally speaking, they're not. So for us, we're, uh, wildfire is our probably our number one threat to the state of California.
4: Definitely. So I guess that goes right into like, at least as far as policy, if you were elected for another two year tenure, um, what three policies do you think would Take us down that path the best. I know you already initiated the uh, carbon neutrality, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much mm-hmm. for doing that. Mm-hmm. That's a big statement from uh, big statement for a small but proud city. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what what like three policies are you really interested in maybe honing in on coming these next two years?
1: I'm I'm really concerned about the lack of affordability here. That we are one of the most expensive places to live in the United States. And I'm concerned about that and the lack of diversity here as well. Creating more diversity is such a seems like such a challenging and complex issue. To, but I'm really consistently trying to think about what we can and need to do to to do that. Um, and I think affordability is a part of that. Um, so we're looking at policies to demand as much affordable housing as we can from developers especially on big developments and actually the city of San Luis Obispo has more affordable housing in the city limits than within the entire county combined so we've done well on that issue um, but there's still a lot of work to do you know the average home here I think is getting to be around $800,000 you know who can afford that Um, and so we have a a lot of our problems are basically being uh, victims of our own success. It's such a desirable place to live that we have folks coming from the Bay and from L.A. that can, you know, they sell their homes for cash and they can come here and spend, you know, almost anything on something. And so that's that's a challenge for our local community. Um, so I'm looking at policies or, or, around that to try and create more meaningful affordability. And also affordability by design. So the tiny homes are a part of that. I think we need more communal living. I don't know if any of you have been to the establishment or the Islay House, that they're both co-living spaces. I think that's a model that a lot of people would really benefit from, because not only is it cheaper, but it creates those community bonds. It creates an environment where people rely on each other, where they're there for each other, where even the simple things like sharing leftover food to being there when someone, you know, really needs you or all of those things. And I, I think that model is great for students all the way up to seniors, you know, aging in place um, and family models like that would be great to share childcare and all of those things. Uh, that, that's the kind of living that we haven't really um, advocated for, you know, America in general, and especially the West, right? It's all of our ancestors um, are sort of independent free spirit type of folks, right. That, that pushed them out to this space. And I think that's another thing that we're really at the limits of is the celebration of independence of that sort, that instead of that rugged individualism that we've always really aligned with as Americans, we need, we really need a rugged communitarianism basically um, to get through these challenging moments that we are definitely going to be facing. So that's the kind of thing I'm really interested in, 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 in seeing more of.
2: I had a question on that. So recently there's been a great deal of resources put into building some bike lanes on Mm Choro and Broad Mm -hmm. from the Foothill area. to downtown. Uh But what I find is the far more dangerous area for riding my bike is on Foothill. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine died riding his mm-hmm, bike on, mm-hmm. on Foothill about a year ago. Um, so is there, and, and it seems like there, there's a lot of complaints from that area of mm-hmm, Toro and Broad about mm-hmm. those bike lanes. And something we heard from Keith is like, like there's, there's stop, uh, stop signs every 60 feet. People aren't going fast on that road, but Foothill seems like the place where, if, if there's danger to bikers, mm-hmm. that's where I feel it for sure.
1: So, actually, people are not going that slow on those roads, so there's that. And and just for clarity, too, a lot of the people in that neighborhood wants, want that bike path. So, there's a story that is told that the neighborhood didn't want it. And for sure, there was definitely parts of the neighborhood that didn't want
2: it. So, parts it. of it, okay, That's yeah. Clear. Not the whole... No, yeah. but
1: there were a lot of people sure. in that neighborhood. I think when they did a petition, they had 500 signatures that were in support of the bike path, and 90 of those came from the Anholm neighborhood. Okay. So just so we understand that you know we didn't tell that neighborhood you none of you want this right. uh, sorry about that but the, the reason so this also this project started before i got on council so this ball had already been rolling a mm-hmm. little bit and it's a part of our safe routes to school Projects and so it's trying to get people from that whole side of town over to this side of town. So Cal Poly students and there's several elementary schools involved as well. Especially yeah. with Pacheco, there's a lot of school or people come from all over the city. It's not just a local neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. So that was a part of it too. We are getting a protect or a crosswalk up on or a lighted. I think it's the lighted crosswalk on Foothill at I want to say Farini perfect yeah so that's a part of it too yep, and actually that's, that's happening first okay. that's happening pretty soon i think really yeah within, within, wow. with the city soon so right. like within the next year i think okay. yeah because no doubt you're absolutely right foothill is crazy it's a mm. death strip yeah so that's you know so we will slowly but surely be creating safer infrastructure for bikes throughout the whole community
4: yeah and then um building upon that and thinking about where we are right now um, and your past actions I'd love to ask about the Cal Poly master plan and how you feel about it and some of the pros and cons
1: well we as a city felt that it had significant problems significant enough that we basically sent it back to cal poly to say you need to redo this and they are right which now. we
4: thank you for
2: that yeah. <laughs> what what were those problems
4: you know,
1: there's so many um i think there were a lot of concerns about some of the way things were measured and water water is it water is probably going to be the number one challenge. You know, it, it's hard because also the vast majority of the community is really hungry to see more students on campus um, in the hopes that that will relieve housing pressure to some extent in town. Um, and so that pushes that potential back, but we also, there are we have a responsibility to the community to make sure that um, impacts are mitigated. So there's traffic, water, um, public service impacts, so fire and public safety um all of those sorts of things so they are in the process of doing that second um environmental impact report i think is the main part that they're working on and that will be back i heard i think in the spring
4: great yeah um and this kind of this next question uh our last question kind of goes along with uh one of the impacts i think of the master plan which kind of if we push more students onto the campus um, will we see heightened polarization in the community Mm -hmm. which i think already exists to a degree Mm -hmm. um, between the local town town folk and the students coming in from Mm -hmm. san francisco bay area los angeles Mm -hmm. san diego how do we ameliorate kind of this damaged bond between mm-hmm. the two bodies because I think you can definitely sense it in city.
1: Oh, definitely. In city. I feel like we've been the most pro-student council the city's probably ever had and have worked a lot with students on policies around safety enhancement zone expansions and lighting, extra lighting around Cal Poly and a lot of other things that the students have brought up. So I think that we very much are interested in trying to heal that and bring the campus and the community together. Um, and, and I would hope that For the students, it wouldn't feel like pushing them onto campus. It would really feel like inviting them onto campus in a way that is a living space that they want to be in, that has the amenities that make them successful, but also make the experience a positive and fun one for them, that is affordable so that they can do what they came here to do, which is get their education and build bonds with their peers. Um, And I think, though, that it could actually have the opposite effect of what your concern might be. The, the most, the two negative things I hear most often about students are behaviors. You know, the someone threw up on my yard and my neighbors are being loud again, that kind of thing. And then the fact that from their perspective, the neighborhood doesn't feel like a neighborhood because there aren't really long-term residents there building those relationships over the long term. That there isn't that sense of families and little kids and seniors and like that mix that you might have in what you might consider to be a classic neighborhood. And so I wonder if there were less... pressure on the neighborhoods with students if that might be healed, because they wouldn't be f- seeing the students as a threat to that sort of neighborhood wellness. Um, and then we would have to continue to work hard to bring the campus into the community and the community onto the campus to make sure that those relationships are fos- being fostered.
4: Yeah. How would you, how do you think you would do that? Uh, bring them to each other? I, I understand the premise. Uh-huh. Like, how- How would you get the community onto campus?
1: Well, I mean, I'm on campus all the time, and so I try and encourage other uh, community leaders to reach out to students. I mean, you know, I think that it's really easy to say, well, why aren't they showing up for anything? Um, And I know you guys are probably, you're you're not even millennials anymore, but, you know, obviously millennials have gotten this ridiculously bad rap, but I also feel like go where the people are. So if, you know, I think that a lot more of the community could and should be coming onto campus, but also they probably need to be invited or at least made aware of what the opportunities are. Um, So I think that there's a huge missed opportunity there. There's a lot of intellectual capital in the community. The Hothouse is a really good example, especially now that they've expanded the Hothouse to have more community members and not just Cal Poly students in there, but a lot of the mentors that are involved in the Hothouse they're amazing community members that are willing to a lot of times donate their time to facilitate you know, and help people that are building the business, for example. Well,
0: one thing on that note, I remember Austin telling us, I don't know if either of you remember the exact name of it, but when you're on, if you're living on campus, you can't Yes, so you're the...
2: out, so from what I understand, you're outside of the slow city jurisdiction. Correct. And so if you are a resident on campus, you can't, you cannot participate through your vote, which is sort of the Democrat, the democratic standard of, of political participation in your community. So I realized in asking this question that I really um, did some mansplaining. Of,
0: I only needed the word.
2: I'm so sorry. I only needed
0: the word jurisdiction.
2: I know.
1: It happens. Yep. <laughs> I would love to see that change, and yeah. I don't know if that would... I think that other campuses have fought for that and won that battle. Okay. I don't know. I'd have to look at it to see if that would require us annexing Cal Poly, and I don't know if that's viable or if Mm. if that would just cause... A lot of drama and pushback. I, I, I honestly just don't know if that's viable or, or what. But I, I, agree that I think it's pretty problematic that a lot of the policies that we make here at the local level for students living on campus, especially as we transition at the Cal Poly full build out of 60 to 65 percent of students mm. living on campus. Yeah. Right. Then you'll have almost the whole campus disenfranchised from local politics. Yeah. So I think that's something that that's a perfect example of something that the campus and the community could work on together is to change that.
0: I think this, okay, this whole process has made me notice a lot more things about San Luis Obispo and be much more aware about the things that happen in our town. Yeah. And one of those main things is the traffic in San Luis Obispo and coming from a small town, I think that traffic in small town environments, especially makes me so annoyed because you don't expect there to be traffic. And it seems like there shouldn't be traffic. Whereas if I'm driving in a big city like LA or San Francisco, when I'm visiting there,
2: you should know it's going to take a while to get it. Yeah. You
0: know, it's going to take well. And I expect a lot of traffic and
2: because there's millions of people living there.
0: Yes. Millions. Yeah. So many people. And just like there's skyscrapers. It just like this, the traffic makes sense where you're at. It just, look, it kind of, it fits the image of the city, I guess you could say.
3: But in <laughs> San
0: in San Luis Obispo, when I'm trying to get from, I mean, it's almost just at any any time of day. Yeah. I try and get from
2: except like two in the morning.
0: Yeah, I try and get from like uh, Santa Rosa no. Park from Santa Rosa Park to um, Slodoko. There's just so many cars everywhere and then when i look at everyone in their cars it's usually only just like one person yeah in their car i mean occasionally you'll get a full car of college kids all hanging out yeah um but i've just and i've really really noticed it more especially coming from after interviewing keith gurney and heidi in the w- different ways that they talk about population growth because keith talks about the population growth in that we need to um Really, I don't know what's a good word. Like, pause it from happening, or just like um, maintain the city size as it is.
2: Right size, not super size. Is yeah. What we about. He's like, there will be growth, but we're not trying to. We're not trying to grow for growth's sake. Yeah. We're trying to grow as a healthy city of this size can feasibly develop. So having all sorts of cars mm-hmm. on the streets. Mm-hmm. Why are there so many cars on the streets? because houses are housing more people than they're supposed to be
0: mm-hmm.
2: people are putting five and six yeah. and seven people in houses that are meant for families of three and four yeah three four five and even just and a,
0: even if a family is a family of three four or five they usually only
2: have two cars only two people and yeah only p- two people in that house have a mm-hmm. car at most maybe a kid then there's mm-hmm. three okay but that's always in flux mm-hmm. some people have younger kids some people have older kids some people yeah. have kids that have moved out so. Now, when you have a steady, consistent stream of people putting five cars to a house,
0: mm-hmm.
2: what you have is then street parking problems, all sorts of things. If you,
0: if you have a house, you want to be able to park in front of your house. That's what a lot, a lot of people want.
2: Yeah. Apartments. How do you do that? Parking structure, I, I guess. really
0: don't know. I really don't know.
2: Just make things closer. Uh no. See, you got a bike. You got a bike.
0: Yeah, I guess we just. People just has to can't get have cars. I know. There are
2: too, too many. And I have a car. That's the thing. I tried to go car. Yeah, that's free. the thing.
0: People have too many cars, but it's like I I have a car. Yep. I am in the people category.
2: Yep. Isn't it funny? We talk about people have too many cars. We have too many. Yeah, cars. we have
0: too many cars. We need to we need to start changing everything we say to be like that. Because we are part of the problem.
2: Yep. If See, you're listening problem, to this, you're probably part of the problem. Making it human is about realizing that people. When we talk about oh those, we talk people, about other people.
0: That is talking, you. That is me. You yep. and me. Yes. We're part of this issue. Yeah. That's. I think. I think the word people makes it really easy to other.
2: Yeah. So easy. Oh, those people.
0: Gosh. Pe- people just don't get it. People don't get it. People don't know how to recycle.
2: (laughs) You know, (laughs) I don't wash my cans out. Come on. Do you wash your cans out? Yeah, I do. Do you wash everything out?
0: Um, I rinse it.
4: I think that both of the candidates are really excellent people. Actually really like, I think they both have a very high moral value, um, on life and other people. And I think they really care about everyone. Which was like so apparent in both of the interviews. Very different people, very different backgrounds, but both, I would like to say, humble, actually, and like down to earth and down to the roots and um, truly caring. Um, Keith, definitely through all of the work he's done and his environmental passion and also just his lifestyle values, I think a very true person. And he could, Feel that in the interview. And then Heidi Harmon too, what she's been through, uh, being a house cleaner for a long time, trying to raise her children. Like definitely two people that have worked hard and will work hard for the project of running the city. Both like, I'm I'm actually so happy that both the candidates are so strong environmentally. They're both super environmentally conscious and aware and forward thinking.
2: I don't want this sort of like, oh my gosh, like who do I vote for to deter anybody from, voting. from voting. It's like, oh my gosh, is it, it's just too complicated because that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. It's like, this just seems like so complicated, like I'm not even going to bother like putting my, putting my vote in. But vote for a mayor. If you think- do, if you don't vote, you can't complain because then you don't have any say in what happened.
0: For me... I would like to see Heidi because extending her term already in office, she would just be able to get more things done for and um, especially the Carbon Neutrality Act. I don't know how much Keith would um, continue with that because it is so radical and um, he is much more practical. And but I think Heidi's inspiring because she is so radical in a lot of the things that she believes in, like has these really big goals that may not be completely achieved by the time we hope for them to be achieved, but we still set them regardless. Whereas Keith, I just feel like he knows what he's doing and he has all of the practical knowledge in running a city. Mm -hmm. Like he knows how to plan a city. He knows the way he talked about the bike lane on Broad Street. He had thought out to himself how... He thinks a bike lane would be much more um, useful on foothill instead of right in front of his house. The way I think, just the way he talked about the environmental issues that we face, he just has a much more knowledgeable take on those. The way he was describing how population growth would use water and just different specific logistics.
4: What is this election all about? Who is this other guy who's older and has not the best PR?
0: Or no PR.
4: Or no PR. And you know what? I found that he's an absolutely stellar candidate. And that's not to take away from Heidi Harmon. She's stellar as well. They're on a level playing field. And I'm super impressed at what Slow has to offer.
2: We're not trying to provide punditry here. It's just a really easy thing to fall into. These are just our thoughts on the interviews. Um, but yeah. Thanks for listening to uh, episode two of Make It Human, co-hosted by Paul Gillis-Smith.
0: Daniel Davis.
2: And special guest host. Dominic Checker. Our editing this week was done by me, Paul Gillis-Smith. And our sonic tri- intrigue, as always, is Austin Gandler.
4: Don't forget
0: to vote November 6th. Prop 7.
2: If you're from California, you can register on the day of the election at one of your local polling places. Not if
4: you're in Georgia.
2: Well, California, you can. What is so
4: this? I know. it's just. Have I mean, been hearing about the.